This is a conversation with Frances Summer Anderson. Hi, Fran. Hi, Serge. So you're a psychoanalyst and you're also trained in SE. Yes. So what about that mixture of backgrounds, you know, psychoanalysis, SE, what made you come to SE? What, uh, what's your experience of integrating SE with that psychoanalytic thinking? For me, SE was a tool that I had needed for a long time because in my work as a psychoanalyst, I've been primarily interested in the mind-body relationship and I've been attuned to bodily processes and their connection with emotional and cognitive processes in the talking therapy frame. I have been for years. SE gave me some tools that helped me to refine what I was doing, do it better in helping, for example, in helping people link up, so to speak, what was happening in their bodies as they were talking about a situation or a narrative that was difficult, um, if they were having intense emotions that were overwhelming as they were talking about a particular ins episode or incident in their life. For example, the somatic experiencing concept of slowing down or deactivating hyper-aroused states then actually facilitates the person being able to integrate the emotions with the narrative. Okay. So, so way before you even knew about SE, you were interested in people uh, experience in the body and the um, training in SE gave you more tools in order to explore that experience. Yes. Exactly. So how does that work? For instance, how do you notice the shift of um, you, um, the old you as a psychoanalyst, the addition of SE? How do you notice that difference in your practice? Whether it is in terms of approach, technique, or simply way of conceptualizing or your own experience? What comes to mind is my work with a patient who I had been seeing in three times a week analyt analytically oriented treatment for several years before I began somatic experiencing the first module. Mm -hmm. And I had, I, I had had difficulty knowing how to help my patient because she always spoke very rapidly. She always had a lot uh, to say, many topics that were bothering her when she would enter a session. And as a session would unfold, she would ask me 
to repeat what I had said to her. She didn't realize she was asking me to repeat. She would ask me the same question several times throughout the session. And I had gotten a supervision consultation about working with her. And the usual methods of interpreting resistance, for example, uh, were, were not making a difference at all. Mm-hmm. And I remember in my the first module of year one with Nancy Napier, I began to think about this patient, and I, as soon as I saw the patient for the first session after that uh, first module, I was different with her. I realized, I had realized during the training that what I needed to do was help slow down her stress response activation mm-hmm. because literally she could not think and she couldn't remember because she was in a state of chronic hyperarousal. Yeah, yeah. And that awareness Helped, has helped me enormously in working with her. And I never, I never thought, <clears throat> I never thought that I could help her actually slow down and be willing and interested in slowing down and settling in as soon, as soon as she came into the session. But I began to incorporate that and mm-hmm. I described to her why I was doing it. And she quickly caught on to how important that was, and she actually longed for that beginning of the session where we would settle in, to use Nancy Napier's uh, way of referring to it, let's settle, let's land, and have a, sometimes I would lead her through a, a simple body scan, and then help her orient to the environment, and then choose the topics, put the topics that she needed to talk about in that session out in front of her. Mm-hmm. And it has been so helpful. So what I'm hearing is that um, in your psychoanalytic frame of mind, the framing of the client's responses was that the client was resisting. And in framing it that way, there was a limit to what you could do with her. And then you started seeing her, instead of her resisting you, as her having an activation with that and dealing with it in terms of activation. And as you were dealing with it in terms of activation and terms of exploring the activation and essentially with the slowing down of becoming more conscious of it and more mindful of it, uh, it became a situation where instead of creating a situation of resistance, you experience the client as collaborating and looking forward to it. Absolutely. It's been remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. We still have a ways to go, mind you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So along the way, I keep incorporating everything that I've learned. And actually, uh, this patient is now able to notice and slow herself down more often. I don't have to be the one doing it as frequently. Mm-hmm. Unless it's a, a subject that's uh, very strongly activating. Mm-hmm. 
and then I I will step in and and help her. We'll do it together. Yeah. And yeah. she has to. The patient has to be willing and interested. And she, fortunately, she is. Yeah. So it, again, interesting is it was a change of perspective for you, and it's a yes. change in the focus of the session. That yes. what's happening is instead of the focus of the session being on something like exploration of um, um, what has created her in her past, the focus is very much in terms of the activation in the present moment and mm-hmm. of um, that experience of paying attention to it and managing it. Absolutely. We both of us know too well how the past has affected her in the present in terms of the uh, a more uh, traditional psychoanalytic conception of it. Mm-hmm. The influence of early experience. Mm-hmm. So we we can agree on that, but the impact that that has had on the development of her um, hyper arousal and difficulty with self regulating was that was interpretation and was not mutative, and that's where the SE uh, techniques come in and are so helpful. So. I can hear very clearly that the SE mode is influencing the session, but in a way, how, as you're doing this during a session, uh, how does this fit with your psychoanalytic mold? I assume you haven't completely let go of it, so how do you manage to, to refer to both? I still have my psychoanalytic hat on, in that I'm thinking about the importance of early developmental experiences mm-hmm. on how they impact the development of the self and the capacity to self-regulate or not. I, I also still am aware of resistance, Countertransference, enactments mm-hmm. that that go on on in the treatment, and those are those are very useful. But if a if a per- person like this patient is in a state of hyperarousal, they really can't make use of much of what you have to say. Okay, so. Um for instance, with this patient, what's happening is, in a way, you're continuing the treatment partly uh, in that psychoanalytic mode. But what you're more aware of, what, in a way, the SE has added to your psychoanalytic mode, is the notion that you have to also monitor her nervous system in order to see whether she can be really productive or not. Yes, and help her... Um, be interested in noticing that herself mm-hmm. so that she can take over more and more of the self-regulation. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in a way, what's happening, if we look at it from her point of view, is when she's coming to see you, she's pursuing two tasks in parallel. One is to understand herself better 
you know, in psychodynamic terms, but also to understand herself in a practical way in terms of managing her states of arousal. Yes. And for some someone who did not experience in early childhood and th- indeed throughout her entire uh, lifespan with her family of origin, for someone who did not experience the kind of hyper-arousal that she did, um, that person might be able to uh, function very well in a, in a more traditional uh, relational or classical treatment and not need the particular help around uh, self-regulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So self-regulation in the case of this patient is something that is needed uh, in order to compensate for the lack of training in a way or the uh, trauma or, you know, the uh, lack of training in, in self-regulation that she had. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, in some way, um, when you're working with her and doing, continuing the psychodynamic psychotherapy that you started, um, your experience of SE is as a tool that helps you understand better and help you and help her be more able to, uh, to participate and benefit from the psychodynamic psychotherapy. Yes. An, an image is coming to mind now mm-hmm. as I'm listening to you. It's as if I, ha- I had a camera and I was using a zoom lens. I'm an amateur photographer and I really like zoom lenses and I like going in for the detail mm-hmm. and the texture and the pattern. And in a way with this patient, as he gave me a zoom lens into the activation, the texture of it in her body, in her uh, pattern of speech, in the pace of her speech. Yeah. And we got we get right in there and work with that in a very careful way. Yeah, I love this image. So in a way, if we had the broad, the regular lens picture the activation might be blurred or, you know, just mixed into the whole background, but you're able to zoom in and then see in great detail what the activation is, which enables you to act on it or, you know, just be more aware of it. Mm-hmm. What is your sense of your experience of your adding SE to the more traditional psychoanalysis that you were doing before? You mean uh, for myself personally? For the client. Oh, for the client. And including your own interaction with the client, you know, is this something that you did in, uh, you know, how did you introduce this? Is it Did it come in in a way simply through your way of working? Is this something where you told her, I'm adding some, a component to it? You know, this, as you, you know, a lot of people who are trained in SE have other background. So mm-hmm. part of what happens is how do you make the transition? Is this something that happens just internally 
and changes suddenly the quality of the work? Or is there something where you actually made a very conscious transition and explicitly involved the client in the transition? It's different with each patient. Mm -hmm. The patient I was just discussing had come to me because of a chronic pain problem. Yeah. And the pain problem had been diagnosed as stress-related. So we had been working on linking up whatever was stressful emotionally with the events in her life and the troubling somatic sensations. And she was relieved of her pain within three months of seeing me. But the her the quality of her life and the relationships in her life um, had not improved. Hmm. So with this client we're talking about, how did you make the transition from psychoanalysis to SE? Was this something where it just happened naturally without even needing to tell the client, or is it something where you made it explicit with the client that you were going to try something a little different? With this client, who had come to me because of a chronic pain problem, which is an area where I specialize. Her pain had been diagnosed as related to emotional stress. So we had already been trying to connect up what was emotionally stressful with what was happening in her body. Mm -hmm. So that body focus was already in place. Mm -hmm. When I started the training and came back with my new tools, I explained to her that I was learning more techniques to try to help people with their somatic sensations that were problematic, as well as help their overall functioning. And that's how I introduced it with her. Yeah. If it's if it's uh, if I'm working with someone who has not come with a body problem, mm -hmm. so to speak, I introduce somatic experiencing along the lines that we are uh, directed to do that in the training, and explain to them that part of the way that I'm going to be working is to invite them to check in to see what's happening in their body in response to what they're talking about. And I explain why that's important and ask the, if they feel okay with my doing that mm -hmm. as a way of working. Yeah, yeah. So with that client that we've been talking about, um, you know, given that the presenting symptom was a body problem, was shown in the body, it probably was a little bit easier to delve into the experience itself. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what you said is that actually the symptoms went away fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. But then there was um, a, a desire from the client's part to uh, explore more what was underneath that? Because she realized how stuck she was in every area of her life. Mm -hmm. Stuck 
in terms of the quality of her relationships and her feeling that she had no, very little power, uh, almost no sense of agency in her life, Mm -hmm. in relationships. So we began to explore that in great detail. Yeah. So you specialize in pain. Yes. And dealing with people who experience pain. And mm-hmm. obviously pain is not something that is simply a body sensation, but there's more to it than that. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that and in a way how SE has been helping you deal with that? Sure. The body sensations are inextricably intertwined with emotional memory and cognitive mm-hmm. processes because these signals from the inside, the, from the viscera and from the surface of the body go into the older portion of the brain via the brain stem and are processed initially as sensations. Mm-hmm. And the signals pass through the emotional brain, so to speak, and eventually make it to the cortex if, if all is going well in the brain. And so we know from all the recent research in the neurosciences on cognitive and emotional processing that we know that, that bodily sensations and in particular pain um, are ultimately processed and labeled in the brain mm-hmm. as a result of uh, neural networks among the um, the sensory areas of the brain, um, the emotional areas, and the cort- cortical regions of the brain. So it's very easy then to use the somatic experiencing model, which recognizes in this, in is, uh, its foundation is grounded in what we know about how the brain processes experience and um, explain that to people who are in pain. But so what you're saying when you say processed, you know, and you're, you're making the distinction between the brain stem, the emotional brain, the cortex, is that actually um, the experience of pain is not like a mirror that reflects the stimulus of, oh, okay, this is painful and it's straightforward this way. But there's a lot of other stuff that we bring in to the experience of pain that's not straightforward. Right. The way I summarize it, uh, for patients and when I teach about this is um, pain is the result of sensations, emotions, and cognitions that are processed simul- almost simultaneously in the brain, somewhat sequentially in the brain, and out we come with the label, mm-hmm. um, I'm in pain. Yeah. So and it doesn't, have to, it doesn't have to be because we've had an injury. Mm-hmm. Someone can be sitting in my office talking in no pain at all, and they begin to talk about an emotionally charged experience, and all of a sudden they might get a pain in their back. Mm-hmm. 
or somewhere else in their body. So nothing has happened in terms of a movement or an injury. It's the memory, either the the cognition mm-hmm. and or an emotion has triggered that network in the brain that sends out the signal, oh, my body's in pain. Yeah. So so what is happening is when we have a sensation of pain, um, we have to keep in mind the sense that uh, there's a whole bunch of factors. There's the uh, very primal brainstem, the emotional, the cognitive part that are influencing this, and we cannot be sure from just the sensation and the experience of pain where it's coming from. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And one way that somatic experiencing is helpful to people when they find themselves either in chronic pain or a pain arises, for example, as we're discussing something in a session, um, somatic experiencing teaches us, uh, for example, the concept of pendulation. Mm-hmm. So that if we can bring our attention to another part of the body that's not in pain or a part, if we can develop an image that's not painful, um, or find an object in the in the environment around us to focus on and pendulate our awareness between non-pain and painful sensation in the body, we can actually, it's like calming the sympathetic arousal. Yeah. And as we calm the, slow down the sympathetic arousal, the perception of the sensations as painful can actually decrease. Yeah, yeah. So and that's, even, even be eliminated. So, so the, um, the pendulation, which is to focus on something else, and as a result, you know, the experience is no longer the experience of the sharp pain, and it can be reduced or eliminated. Right. So, so in a way, as the therapist dealing with that, and, and the relational aspect of it, um, you're dealing with somebody who's experiencing pain, and somebody who's experiencing pain has a sense that it is very real, very intense, and in a way is not going to want to let go of it. Because in the experience of pain, um, even though you and I know that it would be great to not focus on it, mm-hmm. uh, the natural tendency we all have is to hang on and not want to let go. Right. So that, you know, telling somebody to let go of it might feel insensitive. So what is your experience as a therapist dealing with that situation? Um, well, one thing, one, one thing that's helped me enormously uh, in SE is just a very oversimplified understanding that the, the brain is wired to survive and it's wired to look for danger and to evaluate negative sensations. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the brain wants to stay focused on what's going on in my knee and solve the problem. Yeah. And in a way we have to teach the brain that if it's a chronic pain that there's, you know, 
there may be nothing actually wrong structurally in the body, and it's helping the the uh, and brain. I'm losing using loosely here, mm-hmm. uh, but it's really uh, having parasympathetic activation kick in to slow down and help us realize that, you know, nothing dangerous is happening right now to my knee, mm-hmm. for example. Having experienced a good deal of pain myself, I can appreciate and I'm careful about introducing this to my patients who are in pain because I remember my first experience of somatic uh, somatic experiencing uh, I was having a headache, and my therapist tried to uh, get me to pendulate. Mm-hmm. I, even though I knew mm-hmm. what she was trying to do in the theory, I my feeling was, this can't possibly work. You can't possibly understand what I'm feeling in my head. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Uh, I, that experience those kinds of experiences that I've had myself help me considerably in using the, these tools uh, with people who are in pain yeah. and, you know, being able to be more empathetic and know that it's not so simple. Yeah, so you can't, you know, just in a way you, you have that empathetic understanding that when somebody is in pain, um, it feels really, really difficult to let go of the pain. And it's not just a cognitive quirk, but in a way you relate it to the idea that it's the whole organism being focused, being oriented uh, toward mm-hmm. the problem. And mm-hmm. that's a very normal, healthy reaction of the organism to focus on the problem to try and solve it. Right. So that telling somebody let go is not going to work. Absolutely. So what do you do, for instance, in that moment when somebody, you know, as you have that sympathetic understanding that somebody is really actually, there's a functionality to that. It's Mm. not working, but there's something, you know, behind it that makes sense, Mm -hmm. even though it's misguided. Well, at that point, I tap into what I have begun learning from one of the somatic experiencing uh, teachers, Raja Selvam, mm-hmm. who talks about using the entire body to help in the deactivation of a troubling um, sensation or troubling emotion. Yeah. So the way I've been trying to use what he teaches with a pr- someone who's in pain and indeed with myself is, okay, let's just stay with the pain Mm -hmm. and try to notice also what's happening in the rest of the body. And and I have a a lot more to learn in how to use what he's teaching, but it it, it helps people feel, um, in a way... That they can be more resourceful. We're not yeah. trying to take, and, and we're not invalidating that you're in pain. Yeah. But let's just breathe and let's just notice, and you stay right with them. Um, 
go, let's go again, the zoom lens. Let's go right in the texture of the pain, the quality of it, what words, what images. Um, I know Raja and Nancy Napier, uh, and, uh, Steve Hoskinson, they might say, um, invite the person to make a sound that would describe the pain. Mm-hmm. If they could make it, put it, make it into a sound. Yeah. Um, or an image. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's staying with the pain, but starting to work with it so that it's not immobilizing. Yeah. Psychologically and emotionally. Yeah. So in other words, you took earlier, you were talking about pain in the knee, for instance. But so, um, you're not negating the pain in the knee. You're not saying just uh, avoid it, think of, don't think about it, you know, go away from it. You're totally mm-hmm. acknowledg- acknowledging it, uh, mm-hmm. but in a way, in the way of acknowledging it, there is a form of experimenting, of exploring it, um, and there is also, as you're playing with it, it's within a context that it's not all of you. You're not just fully concentrated in that little part of your body, but there's more to you than that. Mm-hmm. And so between the part of exploring it and being aware of more of your body, uh, that's a very nice way to be, you know, in a way sucked out of that vortex. Yes. Yes. I'm glad you brought in the vortex because it is a vortex. When pain comes in, when painful sensations come in, they can take us right down into the trauma vortex. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the experience can be immobilizing. Feelings of being overwhelmed, having having no power at all, uh, the emotional response to the sensations um, can be uh, almost paralyzing yeah. psychologically. Yeah. So that feels like a very clear way in which this has, you know, influenced your thinking about pain. How would you describe in a way um, that interaction of your thinking from a psychoanalytic perspective about pain and, you know, what SE has brought in? Well, again, that psychoanalytic hat I have that uh, reminds me developmental experiences are so important in shaping what we learn to label as pain. Mm-hmm. So early developmental experiences, and now we know even going back to uh, the intrauterine uh, stage of life, uh, what's experienced as pain um, and how to regulate that and how to feel helped out of the uh, a painful state. Um those experiences with an uh, important other, the helping other, the parent, whoever's in charge, um, lay down a, um, it's really relational memories mm-hmm. about managing and self-regulating. Mm-hmm. And so the that's the psychoanalytic developmental piece Um that I always bring in and have in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm 
always curious to find out along the way what a person's early experiences of being helped and soothed were. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a, a psychoanalytic piece, if you will, mm-hmm. that is important whether you're dealing with someone who's in pain or not, but how to self-soothe. And so that becomes very important in understanding uh, how, what the patient's transference to me might be as the one who is trying to help them move out of a state of uh, somatic distress. Yeah. So it's, for me, so natural to be able to incorporate the body focus and the, the, the tools that SC um, offers into uh, this contemporary relational psychoanalytic um, atmosphere mm-hmm. that, that we have these days. So, in a way, you have that framework that is looking at the patient in terms of their early development. They're learning how to soothe and to manage pain and mm-hmm. how it's done relationally. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the session, you're also paying attention to the experience of pain. Mm-hmm. And um, that is a way to connect the experience to the early development Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not just um, uh, development, you know, as an abstract thing or learning, but you see it in the present experience. Absolutely. It's almost like as you talk, I have a sense of almost like a, a superimposition of two images. Mm-hmm. Like this? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> so that you can see one track, you know, that shows, oh, okay, I see that where it comes from and so on, and you see the track about the present experience. Mm -hmm. And you can act on one and see how it influences the other. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a good way of describing it. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about it because in a way part of my curiosity is about integrating different theories and different approaches. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, um, you know, that sense of integration for you is at an experiential level of having, in a way, the two visions and seeing mm-hmm. how they correspond. Mm-hmm. It feels like um, an experiential and visual um, experience of the two theories as opposed to something that happens at an abstract level. Mm-hmm. Very much. Very much in the moment as well as having uh, maybe one foot out as an observer of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks, Fran. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.